Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Ned Schmidtke to the show. Ned is a professional television, film, and stage actor with a resume spanning decades. He has had long-running roles on shows like Medium, Days of Our Lives, Point Pleasant, and Jag. You've seen him in films like Wedding Crashers, The Change-Up, and Accepted. He's appeared on Broadway, in Chicago at The Goodman and Steppenwolf, and in theaters all over the country. I met Ned during our production of You Can't Take It With You at the Antius Theater Company, where we are both members. I'm thrilled to have him here and to listen to a story I know very little about. Welcome to the show, Ned. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ned, I told you I was going to do this before the show. I wanted to mention to everyone listening that it is election day today. We are talking at <laughs> 4 p.m. Pacific Domestic Time on November 3rd. And as you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the show today is because you have experience serving in Vietnam. Now, I know you are quick to point out that you were an officer there and not on the front lines. But from my perspective, you represent a generational difference from me that is really compelling and valuable. You were forced to reckon with the idea of being drafted into war as a young man. You know, I have the privilege of not being subject to that fear. And on a day like today where I'd like to talk about our country in some fashion that is not specifically about the purely partisan divide that we're all experiencing, I'm honored to have you here to share your thoughts on that subject and plenty of others. So thank you. Thank you. Because that is something that is a part of your longer journey and your chronology, I'm just going to get right to my softball question, which is, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, a banana, a cup of yogurt, uh, vanilla. Ooh, you add, you actually take a little vanilla and add it? Like a little dropper? No, 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 no. It was a vanilla-flavored Oh, I see. <laughs> just, just my favorite. Okay, good. Uh, it's the closest to vanilla pudding, which I absolutely loved when I was a kid. <laughs> Ned, let's dive right in because there's a lot to tell and a lot I want to ask about. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Uh, I don't remember when I didn't have the idea of God in my life. My family was uh, very Christian weekly churchgoers. I went through Sunday school. I eventually took classes in the church. Presbyterian, nothing exotic. All right, good. I uh, edited a state Presbyterian youth newspaper. So you were a devout young child? Well, I don't know about devout. Yes, I had great imagination and I I was religious, very religious in kind of an uninstructed uh, kind of way until I went to a church camp after my senior year in high school. And then I had sort of an abrupt turnaround. Well, before we get there, did you have any siblings? Yes, two, an older brother and a younger sister. Are they both with you today or are they? No, uh, my sister was killed in an automobile accident when she was 20. Oh, my goodness. And my brother is uh, two years older than I am, and he's still alive, although sadly he's not doing very well. I think he's entering a dementia stage. He lives in Mexico, Missouri. Wow. I don't see him very often, although his son was here this weekend. His son is a truck driver. He drove down from Washington to spend the weekend with us here in Portland. My uh, son and my daughter both live here, and they each have two daughters. Uh, oh, wow. So, so you get to be near your your four granddaughters? Well, yes. We moved here for that reason in uh, 2017. There's a lot of stuff here that already I can tell I want to know about, and I hope you're open to talking about something that is as extraordinary, extraordinarily tragic as the loss of your sister at such a young age. Mm -hmm. And obviously the loss of your parents at some point. But I want to get back to sort of the, some of the early days. So both of your parents were quite devout. 
I wouldn't say they were devout. That's your word. It's not mine. Okay, so you were just practicing. Yeah. You know, to tell you the truth, in hindsight, I think they were churchgoers, weekly churchgoers, and I think they were believers, but I don't think in any way they were devout or that their religion was honestly a very important part of their lives. It was like having curtains in the window or wearing a suit to work. It was what a middle-class white family did. And my father was a deacon at the church, and uh, my mother was an auxiliary and all of that. But no, I think it's just part of what they did. It was a part of their lifestyle. And where do you fall amongst your siblings? Were you the eldest or youngest? I was the middle. You were in the middle? I was the middle, yeah. Your sister was younger than you? Younger, yes. Uh Are there any other moments along your spiritual journey as you reflect on grade school or middle school that are worth mentioning before you get to high school? I have to say that when I was in, I think it started in junior high school, we lived on the farm through my fifth grade and I went to a one-room schoolhouse. And uh, in sixth grade, my father had died and my mother sold the farm and we moved into town. Wow, your father died while you were in sixth grade. I was uh, I was 10. You were 10, my goodness. But my mother kept the farm. My mother was a city girl from St. Louis. And when she was left with this farm, 270 acres to deal with on her own, it was out of her ken. It was mm. something she didn't understand. It was not really a part of her life. They bought the farm because my dad grew up on a farm in southwest Missouri. It worked his way uh, through medical school and had become a surgeon and all of that. And he wanted... Well, I guess to be a gentleman farmer. So she had, she hung on to it for as long as she could, and then she just couldn't. It just wasn't, it wasn't in her DNA. It didn't fit. So we sold the farm, and I did my sixth grade in a city school uh, in the country. It had been a one-room schoolhouse. And it was a very bad time in my life because my brother saw the selling of the farm as a selling of his heritage. Hmm. He was two years older than I was. And I had always been kind of the city kid. I took after my mother. My brother could fish 12 hours a day yeah. on the side of a pond and just watch a bobber until he grew up and got a casting rod and then just stand there and cast and reel, cast and reel, and be happy doing that for hours and hours. And... I played cowboys and Indians for yeah. hours and hours. We would run over those 270 acres and hide in creek beds and climb trees and, you know, all of that sort of stuff all yeah. the time. Yeah. But the city was different. And it, it was, we moved in from a very old house. It was a house that, frankly, had been built by slaves. Wow. Big house in the country. And we moved from that into a little duplex, little buff brick duplex in Columbia, Missouri. And, uh, my brother and I were at each other's throats night and day. Mm-hmm. He was he was he just uh, was acting out the betrayal that my mother had practiced upon him and resented your ability to oh. make that transition. Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it was chair throwing stuff like that. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. And then my mother eventually bought a larger house and. Uh, Things got a little better, but my brother and I never traveled in the same crowd or knew the same friends or anything at all. Were you closer to your sister then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were close, but not, but not chummy, chummy, chummy. Right. But we were, we were good friends, and my mother and I were good friends. But my brother was just this weird person I could not understand. So... Uh, In junior high school, I started playing uh, sort of a double life. I had bad friends and good friends. At our junior high school, there was a thing called the citizenship letter, which was just like a sports letter, but it was for being good, being on high school patrol, being on hall watch, doing all the really good things and joining the right clubs, the Optimist Club and all of that. I was a good boy. But at night, 
we'd score beer and hang out all over yeah. the streets. And so I really lived like a double life. I have empathy for that. I, I feel like I coped in a similar way yeah. in high school. Yeah. 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 Did your mother stay single for a long time after your father's Forever. death? Forever. Really? Forever? Yeah. You never saw she her was, date another she, person? No. Well, she. <laughs> when my father died, the underkeeper asked her out. Wow. And she she went. <laughs> but it, but that was the last date she ever had. I mean, it was really? you know, she just yeah, oh yeah, the whole idea of it was just uh, a poor tour. She was a woman who stood by her man. Wow. And f- she was 42 when my father died at 52. Wow. And she was single till she died at 91. Do you mind if I ask how your father died? He died of a, a of an anemia. I'm having a terrible time remembering exactly what it was, but it was a blood disease. His marrow ceased producing white blood cells. Wow. And he slowly got sick and died over a year. Died a couple of days after Christmas. Wow. In the in my tenth year. And I remember everyone saying what a young man he was. What a pity, what a young man. Well, to me, he was old as creases. You know? Sure, sure. <laughs> 10 years old. Yeah. But I remember getting that sort of new perspective on things when older people were talking, you know, about uh, what, a, what a shame, such a young man. You know, I'm 78 now, and I think, oh, my God. Oh, I can't, I can't imagine. My grandfather died at 59. Yeah. And now I understand to some extent. I'm 40 now and I can see, oh boy, 59. I certainly understand it from my father's perspective, who is 10 years older than his father was when he died. Yeah. It must have been so strange for you to hit your 52nd year. Oh, it was incredibly strange for me. Yeah. Incredibly strange. So Ned, before we go to the break, will you please tell me about that pivotal moment after your 18th year or the end of high school that you were referencing where something dawned on you about religion? Yeah. Uh, Well, as I said before, uh, it sort of happened at a church camp uh, in a a town near Columbia, Fulton, Missouri, on a college campus. And we used to have at the end of the days chats about what we had learned in the day and all of that. And this one guy, his name was Reverend Oakley. He was a very dogmatic Christian. And we were supposed to be able to ask anything we wanted to. And I asked him at one of these things, what does it really mean when we say Jesus died for our sins? I've never been able to really understand the connection between Christ's dying on the cross and the new covenant. Somewhere in there, I get lost. I don't quite get it. Can you tell me what it is? And he said, Ned, you're trying to pull God down to your own size. Some of these things you can't understand because they're bigger than you are. And you're never going to be able to understand them. You just have to take them on faith. And I immediately understood. uh, I was almost, it was almost a secretive understanding. I didn't even want to admit it. But what I understood was that this man was full of crap. Hmm. And he didn't know how to answer me. And so he did that to me. And it embarrassed all of the other guys in the room. You could see them sort of looking around just by, I, I may not have done his tone justice, but it was punitive and it was excommunicating. And I really got a cold chill. Another time I asked him, well, what do you mean when you say the Bible is God's word? We know who wrote the books of the Bible. And we know that they've gone through translations and all of that. 
But who decided, in what century was it decided that God wrote the Bible? And that these other guys were just interlopers. And again, he said the same thing. Ned, you're just a doubting Thomas. You just, you just don't want to go along with anything. You, you, you want to challenge everything. And I thought, yeah, maybe I do. And from that time on, I have looked at religion, not in a denigrating kind of way. I think religions can be very powerful for good and for evil. But I don't think there's any reason to choose one religion over another. I feel that religions serve a, a purpose. And I used to be really, I really hated that when people would say, uh, being a Christian, uh, why should you believe it? Because it's good for you to believe it. You'll, you'll feel better about your life if you believe it. And I said, but yeah, but if it's not true, then why are we doing it? If we're treating it as uh, as 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 a, a palliative, if it's invented to be a palliative, why not take opium? Hmm. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Either it is, or it isn't. Either it is and can withstand scrutiny, or it isn't. Uh, we know that all religions have things in common, like the Ur myth, how we came about. And they have answers to specific things, problems, the old questions, the old answers, as Beckett would say. And I see religion that way now. Uh, I guess I'm an agnostic. And it all began with Reverend Oakley. Hmm. I just started peering behind the screen. And, and the man behind the screen was Oz. And he wasn't mighty Oz at all. He was just a little squirrel of a reverend trying to squirrel his way out of a question. And from that time on, when we were standing in church, and, and I continued to go to church because that's what one did. It was a, 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 an important ritual in life. But when they'd, when they'd start doing the, the responsive reading, I would think, why am I saying these words? I haven't had a chance to read these words, consider these words, and decide whether this is what I believe. I'm just parroting because there's this man standing up there in front of us asking questions, and we're and the response is written down for us. We don't have a choice in the matter. Some guy at some divinity school wrote this stuff down, and now we're just going through it, and it makes no sense. The same thing with, you know, uh, hymns. He leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own hand. He leadeth me. Not in my life. Not in my sister's life. Not in my father's life. What does that mean? He sees the sparrow fall in the forest. He didn't stop my sister's neck from being broken in the backseat of a car. And I thought, well, but that's why the story is important. Because we need palliatives. We need things to believe in. And I became a complete, I had just become a complete skeptic and a questioner. And unable to believe. Ned, that's a very good place to hang up the first segment. Okay. We'll be back in just a minute. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. 
It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Ned in the second segment here. And Ned, I am I am just struck by the tragedy that your family suffers in its relatively young age. Your father dies when you're 10, and your sister dies when she's 20, and you're yeah. 22 or 23 or something? Yeah, yeah, in that range, yeah. I was uh, I was at Beloit College uh, teaching, and uh, my sister had done a year at Beloit and was stressed out, and she took uh, a year off, and she studied at the Art Institute, and then came back to school. And in her first year back, she was a proctor, a floor proctor in her dorm. And she was a, a very special person, my sister. She really had a deep caring for people. She was a softie. And she was also a, straight, a very straight arrow and the apple of my mother's eye. Mm. And... I have to tell one story. She she was uh, she was a sorority girl, Delta Gamma, and she had a, a a pledge mate, a sister later, in the sorority, and she was a black girl, and she was from back east, and she wanted to bring her friend to Thanksgiving because her friend was not going to be able to fly back to the east coast. And she called and asked my mother, and my mother was fine with it. But my mother had a housekeeper who was practically live-in. She was there all the time. Uh, She was a very strong force in my upbringing. She knew all the crap that I was up to that my mother had not a clue. Mm. She, She would always say, if you boys make your mother sad... I'll wipe up the floor with you. (laughs) And don't you think I can't? (laughs) And my mother told Lucille, that was her name, lovely, lovely woman, told Lucille that my sister, Kathy, was going to be coming home and bringing her friend who happened to be black. And Lucille said, Mrs. Schmicky, I can't do that. I can't serve a black girl. Wow. At your table, I'll have to go. You'll have to find someone else. And my mother was just absolutely devastated. This was a point of view that she had never been able, well, it never had occurred to her that, that Lucille would feel that way. And then the next door neighbor or the neighbor across the street who whose husband was a former uh, medical partner of my father's, said, you know, you really have to consider that in this time in history. Helen, whether you want to bring, uh, let your daughter bring her colored friend home from college. This this was 1966. And uh, so... Lucille called Kathy, my sister, and said, Kathy, I got to ask you not to do this. I'm sorry. I know that you live in a different world than we do, but you can't be doing this to me. You can't be bringing this girl home. And whether your mother knows it or not, it's going to be trouble for her. And I don't want your mom to have any trouble. And so my sister had to renege. Well, that was the kind of girl she was. And one morning, the, our doorbell rang. Uh, my, Suzanne, my wife's and my doorbell rang. We were living in a, a house just at the edge of campus. 
And uh, we lived on the second floor, opened the door and looked down and there was the dean of students. And he never came upstairs. He stayed standing at the bottom of the stairs. And he said, your sister has just been killed in an automobile accident. Her body has been taken to blah, 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 blah. I didn't get that. Uh, we don't know how it happened. She was in the back seat. There were two other girls in the car. They're fine. The driver and another passenger. But your sister is dead. So at now this was at three o'clock in the morning. And my sister was a proctor in about as straight arrow as you can get. And she was in a single car accident, a car that careened against a tree. The other two girls in the front seat were fine. She in the back seat died of a broken neck instantly. Wow. And then I got to call my mother. But first I called the neighbor across the street and said, told them, and please go across the street. So they did. And my mother never recovered from it, ever, ever, ever recovered from that. She had two boys she didn't know what the hell to do with. <laughs> and, and Lucille was taking care of us. Ned, I have to, I am, this story is shocking for, for two reasons, right? One is, yeah. I mean, obviously her death as such a surprise and tragic yeah. shock. Yeah, yeah. But the story about how did you try to process a situation where you clearly had this affection for Lucille, who was a second mother to you, another parent to you, yeah. when you didn't have a father for so many years of your young life? I mean, you just you just didn't have your father for such a long period of time. And she was kind of the enforcer, it sounds like, to some extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She never really was, but she threatened. I mean, she, yeah, she was a moral force. <laughs> but at the same time, a, a, a real weak spot in that morality, right? You know, this this moment with this friend where you see, yeah. you, you're talking, you're telling the story about the affection for your sister who was trying to kind of break barriers in her own way. She cared mm -hmm. for this, she cared for this friend. And she was told by multiple people with kind of not so subtle, you know, threat to some extent that you cannot follow through and bring this to, yeah. to your family, to your mother. You'll be jeopardizing her security to some extent. Yeah. How did it feel then? And how does it talk? How does it feel to you now as you process like this? Where did you grow up? Columbia, Missouri is on the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Nebraska. Look, man, I, I yeah. also grew up with a grandmother who who also spoke words I wish I wouldn't have heard when I was young. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But how did it, pro what does that mean to you? What did it mean to you then? And what does it mean to you now as you look back on that time? I mean, do you, I don't know. How do you process that? I don't know. Um, I was very, I was very, uh, touched on, on Lucille's behalf. I felt very sorry for her that she'd been put into that position. And as for my uh, sister, I don't think she was breaking barriers so much as never having seen them yeah, or understood them. Our high school was desegregated starting when I was in sophomore year, I think it was. So by the time my sister came to high school two years later, it was done. And I don't think it was ever really a subject. Oh, I heard the N-word a lot growing up, growing up in Missouri. Mm. I mean, it was just... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an yeah. ugly thing. It's an ugly yeah. thing that I, yeah. I loathe. Yeah. I loathe that I heard some of that yeah. around me. And but you know... Because of Lucille, because our high school was uh, being desegregated, my best friend, Clay Walker, in high school and junior high school, Clay was fast becoming a hopeless alcoholic and died at like 32 
or something like that. But he and I were invited to go to a place outside Colombia called the Paradise Club, all black. Mm. And we went with this kid named Terry Nunley, who was, we had two really bright black kids, man and a woman, who had been chosen specifically because they had very high IQs and were excellent students at the black high school. And then they got their two guys who were just sort of ordinary guys, just sort of ordinary students, C students. And those four, the plot was to move those four into our our white high school as sort of an example. And sure enough, the, the guy and the woman were co-valedictorians when they graduated Hmm. from our high school, which was all white except for these four people. So, But one of these regular guys, (laughs) Terry Nunnally, invited Clay, actually, and I went along because I was Clay's best friend, to the Paradise Club. And we got to see Tina and Ike Turner live at about four feet away on a stage where Nina could put her hand on the ceiling and shake it all around. Wow. Uh, yeah. And the, and it was, it was uh, a dancing crazy. People were wiping their, everybody had a, a sweat rag and they were wiping themselves, sure. wiping one another. And it was, it was glorious. It was wonderful. It was scary. It, but it was just wonderful. Right, just because like, this was, was this your first experience? In an all black. Right, yeah, to, to breaking out of the cultural, yeah. the cultural tracks. Terry, Terry Nunley said, don't get out of my sight. Yeah. Don't get out of my sight. And we didn't. We didn't. We clung to him. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, I, the next morning I came down. I came down for breakfast and Lucille said, I heard you were at the Paradise Club last night. Wow. Now, how does she know that? You know? (laughs) But she did. She did. She said, that was not smart. You know that was not smart. Don't you ever do that again. I don't care what Terry Nunley says to you. You stay out of that joint. Don't you be doing that. You'll have a heartbroken mother. Wow. (laughs) So that was was the end of that. (laughs) But it was... I mean, I will never forget, never forget. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, Ned, that you, I mean, I know all of the, uh, here's the thing. I like, these are ugly stories, right? On some level, like just you're you're reflecting back how dangerous it was. Yeah. Especially for black people, but even for you when you wanted to just be in their environment. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously it's so alive today in a way that it's always been alive, but it's so alive and in, and, and in the conversation today. Yeah, yeah. And you're talking about how it was just something you, it was the norm of the way you lived. It was your, the yeah. normal. All of these yeah. things that are so shocking, you know, and so yeah. loathsome. Yeah. And, and where you get to have people that you love that also... Maybe reflected the wrong ideals at times, and mm-hmm. it's tough. Yeah. What is it like to yeah. talk about this now? Yeah. And do you mind if I just ask you that question? What's it like to reflect on this time now? Well, I don't. It's actually I enjoy it because uh, there are all of these stories, which are not—they're not big deals. They weren't. Uh, huge deals to me at the time. I don't see them. I don't see uh, my sister as being uh, the breaker of boundaries. I'm surprised at myself that I that I agreed to go out there and do that because I'm usually more timid than that. So I was I, I was very surprised that I did it, but I did, yeah. uh, and it was wonderful. And I've never felt so inside the music, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yes. As I as I did uh, there, and then it was similar to what later, much later, when I was doing the soap, going to um, Club Fifty Four mm. in New York City. 
absolutely forbidden, <laughs> forbidden fruit, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was um, it was that kind of uh, well spiritual, I guess, kind of uh, experience. Yeah. Uh, I went into a bathroom and saw a guy shooting up. Wow. You know, and <laughs> dangerous and alive. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Dangerous and so very alive. Yeah. And also very dangerous. Yeah. Know? So that was. Uh, it was really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Ned, I, I connect on some of these things. I mean, obviously we're two different generations, but yeah. I connect on some of these things. You know, I I also was a good boy and I also did my homework and I was in campus ministry and on student yeah. council. And yeah. I was also yeah. smoking pot and doing drugs yeah. off to the side <laughs> and trying to figure out what was the other stuff I wasn't supposed to be yeah. doing, you know? Yeah, right. And where can I find it? Yeah, because it's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And I also remember, I grew up in a very white suburban area. And I also remember having moments where I was like, wow, this is something that I, you know, a place where I felt I had gotten to be in a new world, a new yeah. cultural world, and it yeah. was beautiful and alive. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, yes, the middle class can be very deadening. Yeah, and the more upper middle class you go, the more deadening it is. The expectations uh, of behavior are so rigid. Yeah, always served up with, uh, "You're lucky, you're lucky, you get to know which fork is the salad fork." <laughs> right. You know, you're lucky you're having this upbringing. You'll be able to eat with the queen when she comes. And, and all of that stuff. Right. And all of every one of those are ties that bind. Ned, I think I want to take our last break right now. We have so much more I want to talk about, but we got to go. Okay. All right. We'll be back in a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. Okay, we're back with Ned in our final segment, and we haven't even talked about the Vietnam experience. You know, I was telling right. Ned off off mic that eventually you get married and you have two kids and you have four grandkids, and there's only so much we can fit into a show. But the thing I think I really wanted to just touch base with about you is I didn't ever have to experience the the fear of a draft, and we can talk at length about what that means to the psyche of the country. And you might have some things to say about that, but I'm interested to know because it's so close in timeline. I mean, here we are talking about it, just two generations apart from each other, but you at a certain moment had to face the idea that you didn't want to go to war and someone was telling you you were going to. Yeah. What is life like in that moment in time? Well, you're just saying that I was told I was going was, uh, in fact, is an oversimplification because that too was a process. All through the Vietnam uh, War, or uh, one is aware that that's a part of the history that's going on while you're involved in uh, going to college, going to school, and being in place and uh, never getting enough sleep and finding time to go and drink and all of that. But all the time, you know, that Vietnam thing is going on and it's, it's war is a terribly complicated thing because, uh, well, you just, you listen to, listen to uh, Biden or listen to any uh, politician talk about, love of country and sacrifice for country and all of that. Uh, and that's, that's not the experience of it, or it wasn't for me that I was sacrificing myself for my country. It's just 
Well, I found out that uh, the draft board was interested in me. The lady who ran the draft board in Columbia, Missouri, had been a patient of my father's. And I knew that I was going to be okay because I was going to be going to graduate school and I was going to be fully matriculated uh, in a course of study. And that made you okay with the draft. So this was somebody else's story, this Vietnam thing going on. Mm. I didn't approve of it. I thought it was complicated and all of that. But I had an appointment to go for a, a physical. And this was, when, this was before there was the, the, the lottery or any of that sort of thing. And I overslept because I was up rehearsing plays until 1.30 in the morning or rehearsing plays until 11 and then trying to do my do homework and stuff like that. And so I overslept and I didn't, the place was going to be 30 miles away. I was supposed to catch a bus at something like six in the morning and go there. So I called the draft board and I talked to this woman who had been a patient of my father's and I said, what's going to happen? And she said, Schmidtke, your ass is grass. What? So then I realized that I had a problem. So I, I mean, started, is she saying that with a laugh? How do you deliver information like that to she somebody? Just, she just, I don't know. And that, that's a mystery. I, I, mean, I mean, she didn't have it out for you. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, don't how know. do you deliver but information the, like the, that to I, oh most of gosh. Most of the time I suffered in my life, oh, you're the son of Dr. Schmidtke. What a lovely man he was. And that was the way he was usually spoken uh, with reverence to me. So this, I expected that this woman might have a particular little spot in her heart for me. Wow. Which, you know, doesn't speak highly for my character, but I, that I was sure. hoping... <laughs> to prevail upon her through her uh, friendship or what have you with my father, and then when she when that when she said that to me, I could hardly. I had to take the receiver. Remember that receivers? Oh, yes, telephone, indeed. Take the receiver away from my face and go. What the fuck? You know what is going on here? So wow. I hung up and I said, "Okay, I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this now." I went and I talked to the president of the university who was uh, had been uh, a conscious objector in World War II, of all things. And he asked me a bunch of questions. And I said, I, I, he said, how do you, how do you feel about uh, going to fight this war? And I said, well, I don't believe in the war. I, I, I think that uh, I don't believe in this uh, falling dominoes theory. Uh, I, I don't, understand the reason for being over there. I, I don't understand what American interests, and more specifically, my interests, are in this, in, in, in this war. And uh, he said, well, Ned, it's not a question of what you think, because this is a shocking thing for you to hear at your young age. The country is a sovereign country, but you are not a sovereign person. It only goes just so far as far as your country is concerned. So if you go into a court to say that you're a conscientious objector and you start telling them all of this rationale why you don't want to go, you're dead meat. Because the only way you can, can get a conscientious objector status is to say, I won't go because I don't believe in it. The minute you start to explain it, you're dead. Because they are sovereign over you. Your country has sovereignty over you, over your body and your soul, whether you like it or not. And that's what I learned. I was punished for it, but now I'm a college president. So then he said, I think you should go talk to Scott Cron, the, the philosophy professor, and uh, who is a Quaker, and ask him what you should do. So I did. And he gave me some instruction, yada, yada, yada. But I realized that um, I, I couldn't go in and lie to say that I was a conscious subjector. It was beneath me to have bone spurs or to drink three bottles of Coca-Cola and a bottle of aspirin before you go in for the physical. Mm. So I thought, well, I, I can go to Canada or I can go to jail or I go. And... 
then when all of this, uh, when this finally came about and I got hints that I was on the list, I decided to go as an officer, self-interest. I decided to be that my feelings about war might be important to men under my command or that as an officer, I might be able to do something for them. Maybe this is all rationale. I don't know myself all that well, but I decided I will go in as an officer as opposed to a bullet blotter. And so I went as an officer, uh, went to school and all of that. And uh, after two years of being trained, was ter- it was my turn to spend my year actually doing something about it. And uh, they sent me off in May of 68. And when I landed in Vietnam, I was scared to death because I was at Tansanut Air Base and there was incoming. We could hear them whistling and coming in and then there'd be an explosion. And I was just saying, oh no, man, I wasn't cut out for this. This is no, no, this is all wrong. I do not see myself in this reality. This is just not going to work. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Then we had a typhoon that literally we were in an open shed with with outsides. Just it was just a had a metal roof, and people were climbing up poles and putting their their duffel bags up on the rafters because the wind was blowing right through at a at at parallel to the ground. Uh, We were all soaked. Anyway, I was there for three days, and uh, I was sent to. Quignon, and then I was either going to be sent out into the boonies as a Signal Corps officer to sit on some mountaintop and defend a a signal installation, or I was going to go to a local headquarters company, which is what actually happened. And if there's any single thing, my experience in Vietnam, it's a feeling of guilt, actually, uh, of survivors remorse because when I was at Port Hood, Texas and I was in a major slot, we had a company that came through, was called Extreme Light Infantry. It was a new idea for tactics in the field in Vietnam. Uh, they had like one Jeep. They, they had no vehicles. They, uh, they walked everywhere. Uh, they had all sorts of tricky things that you hang on the concertina wire to keep intruders out and all that sort of thing. Well, the captain of that outfit was under me. I was a second lieutenant, but because I was at brigade headquarters, he was under me. And I did a lot of work with him calling the Pentagon and finding out what an AR-35-46-12 is, because it was on their scheduled equipment, but there were no instructions that came with it. Hmm. So that was the kind of work I was doing. So now I'm there, and one day I go into the BOQ, the bachelor officer's quarters, and there's this captain taking a shower. And I said, geez, how are you guys? And he said, Ned, yes. There's only about 10 of us left. Wow. They sent us out there with equipment we didn't understand. Most of it didn't work. And we were cut to shreds. Oh, my Uh, gosh. And I'm here hoping to get a psychological dismissal from the army and be sent home. And I thought, oh my God, I was so lucky. I was so lucky What I, my assignment. I was, I was uh, making sure radios were fixed for stevedores uh, in, in the port, uh, offloading, right. offloading stuff. I, I, you know, I was an executive. <laughs> it was just, it was absurd. It was just absurd. I was a second lieutenant, and I was detached for, at Christmas, I was detached for two weeks and sent to a place called Vung Ro Bay. Now, that's, that's where the real war is going on. And uh, the reason I was sent down there was because five sappers had entered the compound in the middle of the night, and they had not, they didn't, had not drawn fields of fire, so the guys in the foxholes and the defensive foxholes ended up shooting on one another because these guys had penetrated the wire and they were standing right between the two defensive positions. And then they unleashed their, their uh, B-40 rockets 
And so the, the first thing I did when I arrived at Monroe Bay was go to the hospital and talk with these soldiers that they were having uh, sand from the sandbags of their bunkers picked out of their skin from when the B-40 rocket hit and exploded. Mm. You know, I, I got so close to being in such dangerous situations, and yet it was, it was always somebody else, uh, and, I, and I was unscathed. One afternoon, we had a call coming in that there was a, a caravan coming in on the road, uh, and they had seen uh, they had seen enemy fire, and there were going to be some wounded. And could we get somebody out there uh, uh, to the main road to guide them off the main road down to our little uh, deep uh, deep water port? And so I was out there and uh, brought these guys in, and they all unloaded, and they all they all uh, went to uh, the enlisted men's club to be debriefed. But there was this one guy sitting in a three-quarter ton truck, and he didn't move. All the other guys in the in the truck got out, and he didn't move. And I went out and said, "Soldier, you, you want to? Is there something wrong?" And he didn't say anything, but he did slide down near the near the door, the back, the rear gate. And I said, uh, "Wouldn't you like to get it off off your off your off your shoulders?" And he said, "Sir, it was all my fault." I was sitting there in the truck with my rifle. And I guess there was a round in the chamber because it, it went off. And it killed the guy across from me, but right through his chest. And nobody knew where the shot came from except the guy sitting beside me. And everybody piled out of the trucks and dove into the ditches and started firing back up the hill at the enemy. And then we called in close in air support, and they came in and they strafed the, the hill, but there was never any enemy out there. It was just me. My rifle went off. I had a, a round in my chamber, and I didn't know it. Unbelievable. So I had to haul him off of there. And again, a fluke. It wasn't me. It was that guy, you know? And then we, because of that, because we had a couple of other raids, they sent us a couple of uh, 105, uh, 105 recoilless rifles, which are mounted on Jeeps down, and two, two sergeants from the 83rd Airborne. Nice guys, nice guys. And Strack, as we say in the military, boots shine, uniform clean, called me sir, you know, uh, just really Eagle Scouts. Mm -hmm. Lovely guys. So then we instituted some new defense. We decided that we didn't need the 105 recoilless rifles anymore, so they were going to go back to their unit. And the guys came to say goodbye to me. And they said, we have something for you, sir. Two of them. And he gave me an ear. What? An ear. Why? That they had cut off of an enemy. Oh. And, <laughs> and I was just... I was laughing because I'm looking at these guys, these Eagle Scouts, and they think an appropriate gift for me is a human ear. I mean, it was just... Ned, we're going to have to stop on this for okay. a second. I mean, that is... I'm not even sure I can keep that in the show. I mean, that is insane, you know? Yeah. Well, of course I could accept it. Wow. You know, I said, no, man, I am so sorry. And you've misread me. Uh, you're, you're great guys. You're great soldiers. I can't even deal with this. I can't even tell you what feelings I'm having right now. Because I, I have liked you guys so much and admired the way you handle yourselves. But I just realized that this is, this is such a screwed up war. And it does screwed up things to people. This is just, it just blows my mind. But it also blows my mind that the, the, the lieutenant colonel who's in charge of this outfit down here is sleeping with his housemate, Vietnamese. I, I don't understand. Where are the rules? Where, where are the, where, where, this is crazy. This is catch 22 times 12. Yeah. I need to ask you, What's the right way 
to tie this up. Here's what normally I need to get to, okay? I need to get to a point where you're like looking back on your life or you're looking back at something and you're commenting on yeah. how you live as you reflect on it. And you have these really, I mean, every life has something extraordinary in it, but you have some extraordinary things. And Well, but you know, if there's a summing up to be had, I think it's that they're really not extraordinary things. Uh, young people die all the time. And one of them happens to be my sister. People who are mostly good people do things that in their frame of reference are okay. Like cutting off an ear as a souvenir. People are, I, I mean, people are different, and we're all crazy in one way or another. And I don't mean that clinically. I just mean we're all in our ways because of our life experiences. We are complicated, silly, important bundles of phenomena that we've experienced. I mean, as an actor, you learn... We accept, you know, as they say, well, this character would never do that. And the director says, well, apparently he would because there it is. It's in the script. And it's true about people. I mean, you say someone, well, these guys would never do that. They're, 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 they're Eagle Scouts. And yet there's the ear right in front of you. Uh, and I don't know, it all comes down to things aren't as as a great or important and yet more important than they are in fiction. Fiction is written to make them more important than maybe they are. This guy's ear was a, a, a moat in this guy's life. And it became a moat in mine, a speck. Because, I don't know, the more you experience, the more unsurprised surprised and yet accepting of phenomena that you never would have suspected before. So, you know, I don't, I, I think I've lived a fairly uh, uh, embarrassingly safe life. I went to Vietnam and I came home. I know two people that I went to high school with who literally went mad from Vietnam. I know several people who didn't make it back from Vietnam. I've been extremely, extremely lucky. I married a girl who had been the roommate of the president of the Players Club, of whom I was the next president in my college. I met her at the end of the year she had been there the whole time. I met her like in April and now I've been married to her for 55 years. Yeah. So, I mean, there've been tons of extraordinary things, but they're all part of a fairly boring life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a fairly, a fair, a life on a fairly even keel the whole time. Yeah. Sad times. Yeah, upset times, dangerous times. But all in all, I've lived a very unextraordinary life. Well, that's a pretty beautiful way to end it, Ned. Okay. I'm really, you really wrapped me up in your story, man. Well, good. I really got into a lot of different areas, and I really appreciate you taking me into some of these areas I just wasn't expecting I was going to get to go. So thanks. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Good, good. I hope, I hope it's useful for you. Yeah, I think it will be. All right, everyone, and thank you all for listening.
the first date he had with a girl, he went into the bathroom and washed his teeth with Comet. What? Yeah, because he didn't take care of himself. He saw that as a, uh, as a part of his, um, uh, it was required of him to act out in every way he could, and he wouldn't brush his teeth. He uh, would take a bath whenever he felt like it. He would go fishing in leather shoes, and the shoes would bleed uh, leather juice onto his feet. Wow. His feet were bright orange from that. He was just gross. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just tried to be gross. 